Hello, everyone. Welcome to Annotations, a Manu um, dialogue series. My name is uh, Nico Heller, and those who, who know me are aware that for about the last two years, I've been presenting Reboot 2030, a democracy school podcast and YouTube channel. The idea there is to engage in an ongoing dialogue, um, people who, through their work, through what they do, pave the way for the transition to a sustainable, regenerative economy and a better life for all. Inevitably, these dialogues focus on big ideas and breakthrough projects. However, without a conscious commitment to a different, a more sustainable, ideally regenerative way of living, I would call it a cultural revolution if the term didn't carry such negative connotations. Most of these efforts will be in vain. And both the transition of our economies and the renewal of our democracies and societies won't happen. Annotations addresses this issue and therefore focuses not so much on what people do, but on how they do it and why. Since I deeply believe that the arts have a critically important role to play in helping us understand what a just and sustainable life and future might look like, I'm focusing for this series on cultural practitioners, their strategies and practices. Now, let's be clear, this is not about cultural strategy, but this is the strategies of cultural practitioners. It goes way beyond kind of artistic practice or whatever, whatever people might have in mind here. To this end, I'm calling on all producers of culture, on choreographers, on musicians and dancers, on artists and architects, on writers, performers and directors, on anyone really who has developed an integrated and sustained practice or praxis within the arts or the cultural industries anywhere to reflect on both the defining currents and crisis of our time and to share with us how these currents and crises are impacting and in some cases are motivating their practice. So let's get this show on the road. My guest for this very first annotations dialogue is Dougal Hein. Dougal studied English literature at Oxford and is a radical social thinker and writer. He's had an early career as a BBC journalist and over the years co-founded a number of highly influential organizations, including the Dark Mountain Project. And more recently, together with his partner in Sweden, a school called Life, sorry, a school called Home. His latest book is At Work in the Ruins, Finding Our Place in the Time of Science, Climate Change, Pandemics, and all the other emergencies. And he co-hosts the Great Humbling podcast and publishes a newsletter on Substack called Writing Home. Now I can see that Dugald has already arrived, so do let me invite him in. Dugald! Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> 24 hours late, but nonetheless. Here we are, Nico. <laughs> I, I am so sorry, but, you know, sometimes when you kind of postpone things, you're just raising the expectation level. Well, and, um, you, you, you know, I thought I knew how to live stream. I mean, I've been doing mm -hmm. Repo 2030 for over two years now, uh, you know, at times almost on a weekly basis. But I forgot that when for the very first time you activate your live stream, you activate a countdown and it then goes for 24 hours, tick, 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 before you can actually then live stream. And this is after you verified your credentials and everything. So and it doesn't mention that step anywhere. I forgot about mm -hmm. it. Hence the delay. Dougal, thank you very much that you can make it today. Um, it, it, it's brilliant. I'm so glad. I'm actually really honored. And I think it's a really, it's one of those magical coincidences because uh, I wasn't quite sure how to how to get this started, this, this, this debate. And I have a funny feeling that what we're going to be discussing today, today is going to be foundational 
uh, you know, for, for, for this uh, annotations um, dialogue series as we go forward. Um, so um, I have already introduced you, uh, said a few things about you. So let's kind of really kind of dig in straight away. Um, I see a certain similarities, and this is really where it kind of became really exciting for me between um, what you call regrowing a living culture. Uh, and I, I believe you've written a recent book about this, and I'm so glad that we can actually kind of, you know, that this can be a bit of a, a sort of an extended launch pad for that as well. Um, regrowing a living culture. Um, what exactly, you know, where does this idea come from? And uh, what exactly, what do you mean by that? Well, it's a good question, Nico, because clearly it's it's a slightly strange thing to say, to talk about regrowing a living culture. Can there be any other kind of culture? I mean, the, the language of culture, you know, deep down in the roots, it takes us to agriculture, it takes us to bacterial cultures, you know, all of that is there in, in this language. And yet, perhaps it is the case that there's something about the ways in which we've been living, the ways in which we've been being human together around here lately in countries like the ones where you and I have spent most of our lives that looks strange, that doesn't look like it's coming alive, that maybe looks like it's dying or zombified or something from the wider perspective of the ways in which human beings have made life work in different times and places. So I guess that's the implication, that's the allegation that's contained within this language of regrowing a living culture. We might pause for a moment as well on the kind of two dominant ways in which the word culture is used in modern European languages, where on the one hand we have culture with a capital C or a capital K, the culture section of the Saturday or Sunday newspaper, you know, those arts which are regarded as being sufficiently high or sufficiently uh, interesting, innovative to be worth having critics who write about them. So that's the sort of high, narrow sense of culture. Then we have this other language of culture, which is culture as spoken about and described by anthropologists, which is kind of broad. It's it's a whole patchwork, a whole pattern of meaning and making life work and ways of being human together. And both of these start off really in their modern forms in the 19th century. They're about the same age. And we often talk about them as if they're kind of relatively distant from each other. I mean, yeah, we're using the same word with the same etymology, but we're not really talking about the same thing. Well, the sort of, again, the allegation that I have been trading in for quite a while now is that actually they're much more closely related together. That this thing that we're quite proud of, or, you know, maybe too sophisticated to be kind of as, as proud and idealistic about it as people were a century ago, but that goes under the name of culture with a capital C or a capital K, that, you know, that's actually a kind of enclave, almost like a native reservation, a pocket, which has to some extent still the kinds of complex logics that govern cultures as studied by anthropologists, while the rest of the, the societal terrain, the social terrain of modern societies has been kind of scoured of cultural complexity. Culture has been pushed back into these pockets, into the art gallery or into the third place in Ray Oldenburg's vocabulary, whilst the rest of our lives is governed by these kind of brutally simplifying logics of the market and the state. The logic of the market is I'm doing this thing because someone is paying me money to do it and I need money or I'll be homeless and hungry somewhere shortly in the future. The logic of the state is I'm doing this thing because someone who has power over me is telling me to do it. I'm a kid. I spend the first 11 years of my life after my early childhood in school because the law says I have to go to school. So we have these two ways of organizing human activity, both of which are incredibly crude, 
in cultural terms and often incredibly bereft of meaning because they're governed by these uh, these logics of extrinsic motivation to use the language of the psychologists whereas culture you know which now is confined to these special boxes the special spaces in which those of us who sometimes get to call ourselves artists can get funded to do things that don't fully make sense according to normal economic logic like culture is this domain of meaning and at its best a domain of intrinsic motivation but what's lost when we forget that culture with a capital c and culture in the anthropological sense are actually basically the same thing is that under normal conditions meaning isn't kept in special boxes while the rest of society is essentially you know living in a desert of meaning meaning is woven through everyday life and that has been the case in societies that were mostly you know in many ways poorer and having to devote more of their time and energy to just basic needs that we might think of in terms of subsistence and survival nonetheless human cultures have tended to be woven through with patterns of meaning myth story ritual ceremony in ways that you know make our modern societies look quite kind of barren and depressing and meaningless by um by comparison so my my proposition is that attending to this the work of culture attending to you know, the work of regrowing a living culture might have something to bring to bear on these you know, existential crises, as I think you've been talking about it, that are increasingly hard to ignore when we talk about the situation around and ahead of us. So how's that for a sort of opening? Let me, that's, that's very, it, it certainly positions you in, 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 in an interesting way. And it is that thought that I would like to kind of um, come back to uh, in in a minute, but uh, for now I just want to broaden this open, uh, broaden this up a bit, and kind of throw a spanner in the works. Um, now, um, culture at the moment is one of the most contested terms there is. See the whole culture wars, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, every and it's very closely tied in with identity. Um, so you know, everybody insists on kind of cultural rights. Um, and without wanting to sound in any way kind of controversial, but you know, you know, Muslims insist it's on cultural rights, and so does everybody. But there is there's a kind of a, a contested field in terms of what is a cultural right and what is a universal human right, or and so on and so forth. So there are really contestations in this whole field of culture, and, and it has been used and abused in a really rather dirty and problematic way by the populist right. Um, so we, we are kind of potentially, when we talk culture, we need to kind of, in a way, kind of build a little wall around ourselves to kind of, you know, to sort of say we're not actually engaging in this kind of culture where we're not like kind of starting another tribe um, to compete with the other tribes. Um, but so, so I think this is one thing. And I think in, in, as we go forward, we, we should keep this in mind that some of our politically minded listeners will constantly have this in the back of their mind thinking, well, but, but you know, um, you know, for example, um, in, in, in Germany, there's a big debate. Is there such a thing as a dominant culture, a German culture? And you can go on about it. Like, I mean, for example, is Germany now a Protestant or a Christian country? Is that part of its cultural kind of heritage and makeup? And, and, and you have these debates in every country, I believe. And in the UK, for example, which is very class conscious, um, you have this inverse snobbery about working class culture, for example. Um, and um, and so so culture is a highly contested term. And so what I what I kind of the way I sort of tend to structure or think about this in, in my kind of you know sort of less researched and kind of you know way of thinking about this is that the the, the, the distinction you've made between high culture and a sort of an anthropological culture is in a sense in a sense kind of goes back to two different traditions. Uh, one is an Anglo-Saxon tradition, which actually kind of then also sort of gave birth to this whole thing of cultural studies and all the rest. And the other one is a sort of a continental European tradition, uh, which is very much more grounded in the kind of the arts and humanities and has a different take on, on culture altogether. Um, now, what's what's interesting about this is that both of these kind of bubbles, both of these traditions have contestations within them. So, for example, within the... Uh, the field of high culture, you now, for some time, you get galleries specializing in outside art. So this is art produced by artists that haven't been to the academy, that haven't actually been formed 
by sort of like cultural or kind of academic traditions uh, in painting or in whatever it might be. And they become, they learn their craft in prison, they learn their craft in the street or whatever, and they now are being sold and traded as outsider artists. Um, it's interesting, but they're kind of obviously clearly within that realm of, you know, art, culture, because obviously there wouldn't be in a gallery otherwise. And then on the other side of culture, uh, you get this, you know, like we would distinguish between working class culture or subculture or this or that. Um, but now this is breaking down much, much more and you get to the tribalist and, and other kind of forms of sort of cultural constructs. Um, and, and so it's, it's a very, it's a very diffuse, a very fragmented field. Um, and it's, you know, and, and this makes it a very, very difficult proposition for us trying to do something about, you know, you know, cultural practitioners, because like yourself, I mean, I've spent my life with a great interest in narrative, but since the emergence of fake news, you know, to talk about narratives and counter narratives and politics, you kind of instantly kind of become a sort of a fake or some kind of spin doctor. Um, and it's become very difficult now for cultural practitioners because these terms have been robbed of them and they have been appropriated by, by other forces. Uh, so in a way, what I'm kind of, I think I'm trying to do with annotations is about trying to, try to reclaim some of that, but not to enter into this sort of mudslinging and to kind of, as I say, to kind of do this within a walled garden of mutual respect. Um, and, and and sort of uh, and, and, and in, in that kind of way. So I totally share your notion of, but I just wanted to kind of add this sort of like padding around it so that our listeners understand that we're kind of not really kind of talking about this kind of highly contested wider field of culture, but we're talking very much from a kind of from a perspective in a way kind of almost more traditional kind of perspective on culture. Uh, how, how do you, how you feel about those additions? What, what does that kind of... Um, yeah, thanks, Nico. I mean, that's you've brought a whole lot of um, big questions into the um, the on, onto the table. I'm grateful for that, and I think uh, I, I was smiling slightly at the sort of building of walls because, of course, that's precisely the um, the move that we associate with tribalism or even with Trump. You know, build this wall. And I was thinking, so what might be a kind of a a gentler um, equivalent that that names the thing that I think you're reaching for quite rightly, which is that in order to have these conversations at all, we need a kind of a pocket of some sort of provisional trust, some willingness to extend good faith to each other's use of language, knowing that some of the words we're using could easily be kind of pulled up tight and used against us. Um, and I was thinking about the way that Ivan Illich and his friends would speak about the importance of the threshold. And you step across a threshold into a space which is a kind of convivial space, which is a pocket within which we can extend hospitality and conviviality to each other and do some thinking together. And maybe that's part of what's needed, given that, as you say, you know, some of these words are kind of charged like electric fences just now. And when you talk about culture in terms of identities, it actually occurs to me that that too might be a symptom of the sort of, um, the ossification of living culture that accompanies modernity. And that accompanies modernity from very early on because modernity, oh, on the one hand, identifies itself with the new and with the future. And I always say that, you know, the, the best definition I've ever found of modernity is that pocket of time within which it seems obvious to treat our proximity to the future as our defining characteristic. And I say that as someone who's profoundly skeptical about that. But modernity always produces an other of its kind of imagined version of timeless tradition which is then what the anthropologists go out and study. They go out and study all of these cultures elsewhere. And you get that thing, which I think is actually more of a kind of Germanic than an Anglo distinction between culture and civilization that's sort of right. in play by the late 19th, early 20th century. But um, the, I, I, I remember one of those experiences of kind of culture clash that I had in my mid twenties having trashed my early career at the BBC and trying to work out what I was going to do with my life. I took a job in China 
for half a year teaching English in a school in Xinjiang in the far west of you know, Chinese Central Asia. And in the first few weeks, every lunchtime and every dinner, I would eat with these four other white teachers from this little language school where I was teaching at. And after a few weeks, like nice as they were, that tiny expat group became suffocating. And I had a big fight with one of them one lunchtime and stormed out and went, right, if I'm going to stay sane here for the next half year, I need to find everybody else who speaks enough English in this city that we can have some kind of conversation, including local Han and Uyghur people, including other internationals from different parts of the world. And over two weeks, I just set off and started finding these people by one means and another. And after two weeks, my boss from the school came over for dinner at my house. And there was a sort of lull in conversation after dinner. And he sort of frowned and looked down and he said, hmm, Dougald, I think you're better at being friends with people who are different to you than I am. And I said, without thinking, I think I'd be pretty lonely otherwise. <laughs> because it, it's a sort of starting assumption to me that everybody is different to me. And I realized that he was maybe operating from a place of thinking that the world falls into two categories, the people who are like me and the people who are different to me. And it's easy to be friends with the people who are like me in whatever kind of cultural life experience way. And it's difficult to be friends with the people who are different to me. And I think that that's kind of that that way of seeing things as like taking shelter in the kind of idea that there are people who are like me and there are people who are different to me actually maybe comes into play more in a weird way in modern societies than it does in deeply rooted traditional societies, because tradition is never actually the thing that modernity imagines it to be, this timeless, you know, fixed thing. Tradition is more like an endless improvisation. The Mexican deprofessionalized intellectual and activist Gustavo Esteva once said to me, in Mexico, we have a great tradition of changing our traditions traditionally, which captures something about what a living culture is like. And so I think, you know, whilst recognizing that you know the culture war for example takes it, it it operates on two levels on the one hand it operates as a kind of smoke screen behind which other important political and social issues are shoved out of view but on the other hand it comes from i think a genuine understanding of this thing of culture is upstream of politics that actually the assumptions that frame our political conversations lie deeper in the soil of culture and therefore, radical change, deep change happens first within the terrain of culture. And then a generation later, that creates the, the set of assumptions within which politics is operating. But we need to you know, create pockets and give examples of what a living culture looks like, rather than a kind of rigid culture as imagined or reconstructed by modernity. And when we get that right, those spaces become invitational and the kind of flat, fierce, hard edged games of the culture war just become kind of unappealing by comparison to the liveliness of spaces of you know, spaces in which people come alive. I always like um, Pete, who started the Stoa, um, talks about a the culture dance rather than the culture war. Can we invite people, including people who we might start off as thinking of being on the opposite side with, into a dance rather than a war? And yet we have to do that with a certain awareness that there are, you know, there are genuine bad actors, there are genuine dangerous actors, there are people we don't want to just naively invite across the threshold. There, there is a kind of process by which we safely arrive at spaces in which you know, difference can coexist. And that's not simply the kind of um, naive, oh, you know, we're all just saying the same thing with different words, kind of. Can I, can, can I, um, so absolutely. So, I mean, what, what I'm kind of trying to get here is, is, is um, and you've called your school called home, it's something also a school for culture makers. And I think this is a really, uh, it's a really, really important point here because it it makes clear distinction. You can think of culture, if you like, 
as a sort of a, a, a list of beliefs, values, this and that. So, so you can say, well, if you want to be German or Germany, then you have to believe in X, Y, and Z, because that's how things are done here. That's a sort of a kind of a, a notion of culture that's essentially defining constraints of what is and what isn't acceptable in, in terms of like sort of like value system, ideology, and all the rest. There's another way that I think I'm, I'm kind of, this is a sort of where, see, where I see you come from. And this is to think of in terms of culture, in terms of the quality of social relations mm -hmm. that we built. Um, so the focus here is on the kind of interpersonal, on the relational, as opposed to on the kind of ideological or the kind of the, 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 the systemic. Um, is, would that be a fair distinction to make? Yeah, I think I think you're onto something there. I think that certainly we always place a lot of emphasis on the relational. And yeah, we started off calling it a school for culture makers and then actually you know, um, partly in dialogue with some of our early participants, we realized that maybe the idea of culture as something that's made might be a category error, that actually culture is more like a garden. It's more something that's grown in which your ability to kind of design and produce and manufacture is limited. Really, you're engaged in a kind of collaboration where you don't have a monopoly on the agency. You don't have a control, but you can contribute to the conditions of possibility. And we do that relationally and, you know, larger patterns emerge from that or you know, grow from that. But one of the legacies of modernity is that a huge amount of, you know, political and economic resources was put into the artificial um, homogenization of national cultures. And if you want to dig into that, Illich's essay, Vernacular Values, in his book Shadow Work, um, tells some amazing stories about the very early attempts at creating standardized national languages and the ways in which this was a kind of internal project of colonization that took place at exactly the same moment as the external, you know, even more brutal projects of colonization of the ships that were sailing out from Europe to other parts of the world were taking place. And so Illich kind of gives you this picture of how you know, in Europe in, uh, let's say, five centuries ago, and much, much more recently in a lot of parts of Europe, actually, you would be, as you moved from village to village, the language would be kind of shading so that people six villages away from each other could understand each other easily. And people 20 villages away from each other with a bit of effort could understand each other. A bit like how when my parents moved to Scotland and I would go into the post office in Scotland, I'd have to ask the lady behind the counter to repeat herself a couple of times. And by the second time she realized that I was English. And so she would be modulating to something between the Scots vernacular that she was speaking and the you know, standard English that I acquired as a result of studying in Oxford and working at the BBC. And we would arrive at a place of understanding each other. But that was going on on a scale of, let's say, 20 villages away from each other. But also the idea of the kind of monolingual individual is a modern, a modern construct. Illich talks about his friend in West Africa who, who speaks one language in the village, another language in the souk, another language in the mosque, another language that he learnt in the um, in, in his military service, and doesn't you know isn't aware of the concept of well what's my mother tongue, in the way that those of us who were born into modern Western national state constructed societies in the twentieth century in Europe grew up more or less taking for granted unless we had an unusual experience of our childhoods. So there you begin to get this sense of the complexity, the patchwork of culture. And again, that can be the invitation away from these kind of you know, rigid edged boxes that then go to war against each other, which is often how culture is being construed, um, you know, in good faith or in bad faith in our political conversations. Um you 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 give this example of culture as a garden. I I, I sort of I, I I I like that idea, and I think it's a very intuitive you know image. Um, but of course, there are so many different gardens, um, and some gardens are all about defeating nature. Um, do you know that or, or keeping nature at bay? Um, do you know those kind of uh, um, uh, 
uh, sort of robots that could have cut the grass in sweet on Swedish lawns, and then they're always perfectly clipped, you know. And you wonder how how do they do this until you realize they've got little robots doing it for them. Um, and so, so, so there is this, and you can understand why they would do it because they've got so much nature beyond that garden that they kind of, in a way, want to kind of keep it at bay. Um, um, and so. So, so that's that. But then you have got the English gardens. And in fact, within the English gardening tradition, you've got different traditions. You've got like the kind of the tradition like Hampstead Heath, for example, which is kind of imitating nature. Yeah. And then you've got whatever kind of Hyde Park, which is, you know, like overcoming or kind of mastering or kind of uh, owning nature. Uh, and so you get this whole, so when you talk garden, um, I think the, the reason why it's such an appealing idea is because we all pick our own garden, can't we? And to some, it's basically to dominate others and to other like, you know, whatever, or to kind of give it your stamp. Um, and it becomes a kind of manicured kind of clip garden. And to others, it becomes a jungle. Uh, or some horticultural kind of like enterprise where like a very much an ecosystem where the plants actually tell you what they want to be. Um, and so um, I, I think this is a really, really interesting analogy for a starting point is think about not just how we relate to each other, but also our relationship to, of course, to, to nature and the world around us in a more wider sense. Because, of course, and, and this is so. So when I when I think about this question, you know what practice underlies a kind of a kind of a sort of a regenerative, a sustainable um, kind of um, future? Um, then um, I, I kind of I, I think I have to narrow this down to a certain gardens that I think that can really kind of provide us with a future and others that can. And I think we've got to be quite explicit uh, about that. Now, let me kind of, I have um, this sort of hypothesis, which I actually, and I have in all honesty to say, this has kind of come to me when I was thinking about you and, and about this. So I don't even claim sort of sole ownership of this hypothesis because it's very much kind of, it was inspired really by our sort of like, by this dialogue here. And let me throw this out. So uh, the hypothesis is that the, the collective mastery of sustainable regenerative living leads to the complete realization of life itself. Let me repeat this, the collective mastery of sustainable regenerative living leads to the complete realization of life itself, both in terms of understanding self and others and in terms of giving voice and form to that understanding. So there's, there's those two aspects to it. Um, I emphasize collective uh, because for any practice to be sustainable and regenerative, I believe it has to become a collective or a socialized practice. What's your response to that? Wow, I mean, it's, I always love those kind of sentences or phrases that are a bit like origami with meaning. There's so much kind of folded into a few words. And uh, for, for us with the school, when we talk about the school being a school for those who are drawn to the work of regrowing a living culture, those 15 words have a huge amount woven into them. And it feels like this is kind of your equivalent to that. Um, my sort of, uh, the, the things that I initially react to within it or would want to probe at, um, the language of mastery, I mean, it has sort of two edges to it. And I think probably like the where you're, where you're interested in going with it is something that um, actually resonates with me, which is mastery in the sense of the mastery of a craft. You know, the, I, I always like Walter Benjamin's um, The Craftsman and the sort of ideal type that he describes in there of, you know, you have the two kinds of storytellers, the one who is grounded in place and holds the stories of place and the one who travels from place to place and brings the stories from the other side of the hills and that the medieval craft workshop where you have the apprentices, the journeyman and the master is actually a kind of institutional form that weaves those two things together. So if we're talking about mastery in that sense, in the sense of, you know, um, that living is something that can be done skillfully or carelessly well let, let me just just add a few words mm. here the reason why i use this word mastery is because mm. i do want to think about something that can be learned yes that can be passed on 
in generations. Because only if we can pass it on to our children and grandchildren, um, you know, through our own parental guidance and, you know, role modeling, but also through teachers and other, if you like, guides and other kind of opportunities uh, people have in life to learn, uh, unless there is an element where we can actually learn sort of cultural behaviors, um, mm -hmm. then it, it would be a total elitist thing because that will, otherwise we would assume that, you know, certain people just have it another stone but mastery suggests that you can actually obtain it if you know so so for me the, that element of and as you said this sort of like apprenticeship and that kind of is very much i think in in that so mastery doesn't suggest a kind of an elite position but it says it, it suggests an ambition a sort of an aspiration that we all can have so um I, I, as i'm thinking more about this two bits are coming to mind one is I always find Keith Johnstone, the improvisation teacher, to be a great sort of touchstone for all of this. And you know, I'd, I'd want to have a sense of the kind of you know, the the role of foolishness within within this sort of mastery, because otherwise, you know, mastery can speak to a desire for you know knowledge and power and control, which I don't think is what you're really interested in oh, leaning yeah. into. But the other bit is, I suppose, one of the reasons why, or one of the things that's led me into this language of regrowing a living culture is the need to name the paradox that the societies which place themselves at the top of the pyramid as the most developed societies, the ones who are closest to the future, might actually be in some other sense, some of the most culturally impoverished societies that the world has ever seen. Now, I remember Vanessa Machado de Oliveira, the, the author of Hospicing Modernity, saying to me one day, she'd been having a conversation with an indigenous friend in Canada where they had been experiencing some real exasperation about something. And one of them said to the other, you know, living in modernity is just like spending your whole life in kindergarten class singing the ABC song over and over. Like that's how culturally clueless the dominant culture is. And so from that point of view, I often find myself saying in the work that we're doing at the school, look, let's just start by admitting to each other that we're in remedial class here, that culturally speaking, we have arrived as fully grown adults without the things that most of our ancestors were equipped with by the age of eight. And let's... You know, let's name that in a way that allows us to laugh at ourselves and to sort of to enter into an apprenticeship into what it might mean to be you know to be learning to be capable of being elders having you know not been born into uh, a context in which we had many elders around to look to ourselves in our own growing up and so that's you know that's not to to cancel out where you're going with the language of mastery, but just to add some things that might be helpful in fleshing out what a long journey it is from here. Oh yeah, to get there, there's one other aspect, where... um, uh, which I, I think is really quite important to kind of to, uh, uh, to, to, to consider is, is, I mean, mastery of course, plays a big role in, in high culture. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, like the, the kind of the, 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 the uh, you know, virtuoso pianist or, I mean, if that isn't mastery, you know, of the piano or the, the violinist or whatever, or the, the, the kind of the genius Picasso painter or, or whatever. So mastery resonates with, you know, a, a wide range of traditional cultural practitioners. And it's a it's a framework that we understand and it has to do with more to do with letting go and, and learning and kind of, but, but that's the whole thing in terms of art education, how do you actually kind of master your craft? Uh, but there is another aspect, and so this is this is one aspect where I think mastery maybe within a kind of it, it kind of locates this more if you like if you if you go back to this dichotomy between uh, you, know, you know like culture and a kind of European continental sense and Anglo-Saxon it may it shifts it kind of distinctly in a way to the kind of the the, the kind of the continental European side of, uh, of of that of that thing. But there's another aspect which I think is really quite. Um, interesting here is, is whenever, and this is where I think where it becomes an interesting statement, um, when we talk about mastery in the arts, 
oh Jesus, it's such a freaking ego business. It's like betting on racehorses and it's all about CVs and about my resume and my exhibitions and my publications. And you know what I mean? This is all what it's, it's about the market. It's about it's about quantifying cultural you know output. Um, here we have a master, and that's why he can sell his paintings for ten hundred thousand times as much as this outside artist who learned his craft in a prison and doesn't know anything about art. Uh, so this is of course very much a problem as well. At the same time as it locates it in in a kind of in a kind of in a tradition. So when I talk about mastery, I'm emphasizing collective mastery collective yeah. mastery of sustainable living. In other words, how we master together. Yeah. And, I, and that's I a think... different, it, it takes, gives it, it gives it a spin, I think, which is very, very different. And here's, here's the question. I mean, one way of looking at collective mastery, of course, is a football team, yeah? You've mm -hmm. got to kind of play well as a team to, to, to collectively win the game. But again, yeah. we're still in the field of competition here. Um, there may be other forms of kind of collective mastery, like a family, for example. So what's coming to mind for me is one of John Berger's essays where he's talking about um, you know, the oil painting of the last, let's say, 500 years in Europe. And he's saying, you know, almost always when we try and talk about this tradition, we're looking at this collection of exceptional works the works of the masters yeah. and because of that we miss what's probably the most important thing to be said about this tradition which yeah. is that there has never been a an artistic a cultural tradition in which the gap between the masters and the general standard was so extreme and he says why is this and he says well because you know somewhere in the early modern period for the first time, most of the work that is being made is being made under the conditions of hack work. And he says what defines hack work is not you know, the lack of skill of the practitioner. It's that the commercial imperatives are overriding the intrinsic demands of the work itself. So skilled craft is being replaced by you know, a dominant set of economic considerations. And therefore, those who stand out as the masters of those centuries, you know, it's not just that they had to stand their head taller than those around them. It's they also had through a kind of sheer force of will and combination of luck and stubbornness to be looking in another direction, to be uh, bending their lives against the course that the dominant economic logic was pushing almost everybody's lives in. And so to see that, to see the, you know, and that's interesting because there you have, you know, I mean, Berger's one of my great heroes and inspirations, and he brings you know, the virtues of his Marxist tradition to give us a more collective lens on looking at that, you know, those centuries of art history than the ways that they are all, you know, generally spoken about. But what's great with Berger is that Whereas Marxism in general tends also to be stuck within a box of assumptions of industrial modern society, Berger is one of these figures who you know, took his Marxist thinking into dialogue with a peasant culture, in his case, in the Haute Savoie in France in the, the 70s, you know, one of the last pockets of you know, a, a peasant culture anywhere in Western Europe, and was able to rethink and open the edges of the kind of the box of the modern assumptions and became such a rich thinker um, as a consequence of, of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we can I, just look one way or another for ways to sort of open the frame of what we think we're talking about when we're talking about culture. The other bit is that within this enclave, this kind of native reservation of culture with a capital C, there has been, it's been the one zone, yes, on the one hand, on one side, there is this constant trade into the market going on. But there is also within this box, a, um, a space for a kind of a mastery of the, uh, the subjective rather than the objective, 
which there is almost no language for anywhere else within modern society. So I remember the Swedish theatre director, Lisa Fanström, telling me in her first six months in the directing programme at the drama school in Stockholm, the only, you know, the only thing that she was told by her teacher was, you know, trust your judgment. What do you, what, what do you feel you should do? And it was this insistent, repetitive, single thing of, you know, being made to pay attention to and learn to trust and then sharpen and hone a subjectivity where elsewhere within modern society, subjectivity is treated as something laissez-faire. It's just, you know, whatever you feel like. So I think the arts are carrying something which is much more widely distributed in most human cultures, which is an awareness that the subjective can be a focus of mastery as much as the kind of the objective, the mechanical, the stuff that science or engineering allows us to talk about in modern terms. Absolutely. Um, Dougal, you have been described, um, you know, or you describe yourself as a social thinker, as a writer, as a speaker, but you've also, of course, been a social entrepreneur and activist. You have you've worn many hats in, in, in a very long and varied life. Uh, and, and as I said, you know, I've only pointed out two uh, of the projects that, 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 that you know, the, the school called Life and the, the Dark Matter, but you have done tons more. Uh, you know, in fact, I think many people probably probably know you better as a social entrepreneur than they they, they do as a writer because you you really you generated waves doing that as well. So, but you found a way at some point to integrate this, uh, of course, and also you know one shouldn't forget you as if, if I understand correctly, you're also a husband, you're a, a father, you have friends, social life. I mean, when you um, when you think about when you think about your practice as a writer. Um, what role does writing play um, in your life? Because what we have done so far, we've kind of, in a way, tiptoed around this, haven't we? We have kind of, on the one hand, I had this kind of quite clear definition of like high culture, and we've been talking about the grand masters and this and that and the other. On the other hand, we have diverted way back from that to anthropological understandings of culture, and, and we kind of sort of switch between those. But you're saying yourself, and I think this is very much my ambition as well, is somehow really the magic lies in integrating this and to kind of find the sort of the intersection uh, of these things. So uh, so what I'd like to end on with this dialogue here, uh, uh, Dougal, is, is for you to reflect a little bit on, you know, on the role, you know, your writing practice uh, plays in your life more widely. Uh, and what role words play within that? Because, if you, of course, you don't use words only in writing. I mean, you use them every day when you go shopping, when you talk to your wife or partner, when you, when, you know, you know, words are so fundamental that they're not just reserved for your kind of, for your writing. Um, so... So yeah, maybe it'd be really nice if you could sort of reflect a little bit on 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 on, on the role that practice plays, uh, you know, in your life, and 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 then uh, going on from that, um, uh, how your practice as a writer uh, connects to other aspects of your life, you know, your politics, your passions, and all of that. So you know, over to you. Well, thanks, Nico, and thank you for the invitation to reflect on. Um, my practice as a writer, you know, when you wrote to me about that last week, I actually found myself writing a, a, a little essay that I sent out on Writing Home, which is my Substack newsletter, about my journey with writing as a practice. And, you know, it just is the case for me that, you know, putting words together, using language, Using language to make a home into which the things that lie beyond language can show up, let's say, is it's just what I it, it's it's my thing. Um, but I, and I you know I've worked with many many writers of different kinds, you know, from Paul Kingsnorth, who I started the Dark Mountain project with, and. You know, Charlotte Ducan and Nick Hunt and all of the other great writers I got to work with in Dark Mountain through to the time that I spent working with the National Theatre here in Sweden and, you know, writing for the stage a bit as well. And there are so many different things that we can be doing as writers. So, 
um i like part of my journey of finding my practice was just emerging from the kind of bewilderment of some of my early experiences you know, studying english literature at oxford and being surrounded there by you know, people who were already established or you know rapidly establishing themselves as literary writers with whom i found almost nothing in common as a writer and i i had to go on a very long journey despite having you know been one of those kids whose teachers are always kind of picking them out or picking out what they're doing as having something you know having a gift you can have a gift and you can still have to write half a million words that are unpublishable before you write anything that will be worth publishing and in a way those that those first half million words are your apprenticeship and uh you know because it used to be seven years as an apprenticeship within a craft within a skilled trade and sort of in the same way i had to do that much work as a writer within which there were only occasional nuggets of stuff that uh were worth keeping or doing anything with and some of that was just being a slow learner um i think one of the one of the most um challenging um um one of the most challenging things i found as a, 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 you know as an artist as a um and as a director of theater um is, is that sort of finding finding a, an integrated voice mm. to speak with the same voice you know as a yeah. director in the theater um as an artist in a gallery or in a site specific installation or in some socially engaged art project um you know and of course in my other life you know as a political consultant or as a sort of a coach executive coach to to local politicians or or whatever you know in a world that is so fragmented and it is so organized along silos um you are encouraged to wear different hats on different days so when you go to church on a sunday you wear that hat you know on monday morning you're just going to fire the employee that you don't like uh you have different hats for different occasions you know for family occasions for business occasions when you're selling something or when you're buying something and um and to find an integrated way especially for an artist or a writer who cares so deeply about the message that you know that that one sends um it is a, a very very difficult thing maybe you can talk a little bit about how you strike that balance and the other thing that sort of leads in from that and it's it's been shining through in this conversation as well is that you want to make space for other voices because yeah. again you know there's a real thing about finding your voice and you know I, I, you know um um uh what's it what's it Rossellini, a big sort of Italian director who once kind of basically pronounced that, uh, said that he, he'd really rather write his scripts on, on, on old newspapers because he didn't want to fall in love with his own writing. Um, and, and of course, there's always that danger that before we're all kind of like sort of like closet narcissists, you know, uh, and there is a danger that we kind of that we fall into that into that trap. Um, so, so here's the question, like, and it's a very finely kind of balanced one. How do you kind of, how do you find that voice with all these different demands on you? You know, family, work, different social and business environments on the one hand. And how do you make space within that for other voices? Yeah, I, 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 I'm smiling as I hear you, you say that because it's so true that we all have the, the closet narcissist. We all have what the Sufi called the, the nafs, the hungry soul, the insatiable uh, the the bit of ourselves. I, I remember Martin Shaw telling the story about his friend Coleman Barks, who is you know uh, a translator of Sufi poetry and one of the the best selling poets ever in the United States. And uh, and Coleman called Martin up and said, Martin, I was uh, I was on Oprah Winfrey yesterday, and there <laughs> were you know I don't know fifty million people watching, and and he said, you know, Martin, it was almost enough. <laughs> and there's that, you know, and, and that's the trick is that rather than hiding the closet narcissist, the hungry soul, you have to bring it into view so that it is kind of made, um, made, I don't want to say made fun of in a cruel way, made into something that we can laugh together about the flawed humanity of ourselves 
And, you know, part of why it takes half a million words if you were me as a 20 something is because that's how long it takes you to go on all of the other journeys of the different parts of yourself that get you to the place where you're capable of showing up without having parts of yourself that you're ashamed of, that you're trying to hide in what you write and that therefore trip you up or make you stiff. And that's again why, you know, I learned far more from improvisers and improvisation teachers like Keith Johnston and people who'd worked with him or hanging out with musicians and dancers than I did from the other writers who I shared those years of my life with, because somehow it's in the recognition that, you know, far from the kind of the the absolute once and for all written in stoneness that written language seems to imply, actually, you know, the longest book you're ever going to write is just a small contribution within a much larger conversation. That conversation is only partly made up of words that are written down. It's only partly made up of things that are ever turned into words. And if you can inhabit that, that's where your best work is going to come from. And that's where you can get out of the, the kind of lie that has often been told about the artistic life and the writer's life and so on, which is that, you know, you have to choose between you know, showing up and being a good dad, a good partner, or having the 100% commitment that is required for artistic greatness. And that's just so much bullshit that has been told by badly behaved men over recent generations. And, you know, yes, you can find examples of people who used those kind of methods and shaped their lives in that way and did work that can have a claim to greatness. But you can also find, you know, absolutely exceptional work that is made by people whose lives have a very different shape to them and where the you know the work that shows up on the page or in the you know the bit of the practice that can be put on stage or into the gallery or whatever is <clears throat> is just one sort of doorway onto the the house of a life which has other rooms in it other doorways and the work that comes through the doorway that opens onto the stage is the fruit of everything that's going on in those other rooms, not all of which, if you're wise, you bring to a conversation like this or to any of the other public fora in which you you show up in. I mean, that was another piece of advice that Martin Shaw gave me. He said, you know, if you're going to use stories from your own life in your work, make sure that you only use some of the stories from your own life. Choose the ones that you're willing to share, because by the time you've told them a hundred times, they are going to be worn thin like an old pair of jeans. And there are stories and experiences from your life, people and relationships that you don't want to wear out like that, that you want to keep on, you know, the private altar in the room that strangers aren't invited into in your household. And I think that there's there's wisdom in that as well when we're thinking about shaping a life. Uh, Caroline Ross, a great artist who um, we work with a lot, who's going to be here at the school this coming weekend. She took part in a roundtable that I was hosting for the National Artists Association of Sweden, bringing together Swedish and British artists. And she came out with some great stuff in that. She was like, when I was in my 20s and I was at art school, I was taught a way of making art that involved strip mining my own soul and you know just learning how to be good at exploiting myself in order to play the art game and she said you know within a few years I realized I wanted none of that so she went off and she became a music musician and a tai chi teacher and then in her 40s she came back to centering her life on her art and she said now I'm not approaching the landscape of myself and of my work as you know a landscape to be strip mined I'm approaching it like a smallholder who has been given custody of a patch of land for a period of time. And my job is to work with that land, with the seasons, with the different tasks it involves in such a way that I'm contributing to it, coming alive and staying alive rather than exploiting it and leaving it ruined. And I think that's an incredibly powerful image for different ways that we can be taught to and encouraged to or find ways of working with the soil of ourselves, which is always the soil of our relationships and the culture 
cultures that we're part of. So yeah, that would be part of my advice to anyone who is, you know, trying to find a sane way to um, to find their practice. So I I I think this was really really a, a beautiful sort of way of uh, uh, sort of like finishing this. Like just one last question here. Um, this idea of of you know to, to to think of of yourself not as something to strip mine or to 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 exploit in that kind of way, I mean that that is that is such a fundamental idea that goes so counter this whole notion of human resources uh, or, or yeah uh, or performance management or or any kind of if you like capitalist or technocratic uh, form of sort of efficient production um, that I wonder whether there is something in this um, that would could that what could generalize that could sort of that would be you know uh, would be you know of meaning and, uh, and 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 substance to somebody who doesn't think of him or herself as an artist so if, you know if, if you know if you uh, if you have like a it's a precarious job or jobs or, or whatever or you you know you work in kind of a a manual or in a kind of a, in, in, a, in, a, in, in a position or in a role where you couldn't instinctively gain meaning uh, from, from doing that. Um, can you, in a way, think of how this person could work with that analogy as well? This idea of thinking of yourself as not as something to strip mine, but as a thing of a smallholder, uh, that, that idea. And how, how would you, what kind of advice would you give uh, to, uh, to, to that person? So oh, I, I don't want to be too quick to translate. Um, and it, actually, you know, the reality of this is that this applies to the lives of you know, most of those of us who do get to call ourselves artists, because you're very lucky if you get to the place where you're really making a, a full living from your work as an artist. Most people in most of the artistic fields I have been involved oh. with are combining that with some of the other kind of work that you've just been describing. That's right. Nonetheless, I think that there are skills that are held within this enclave of culture that gets to call itself culture with a capital C, that as things get more difficult, as things unravel in our societies, are gonna to need to be released from this pocket, this enclave and reseeded across the wider social landscape. And some of that is, you know, looking for ways um, to at least find the little allotment that is um, the patch of ground that you can put a few hours of your week into tending, you know, metaphorically or literally alongside what dominates the majority of your working time. It's also, you know, the skill of reframing, the skill of turning things around and going like, any truth that is worth its name can be told in multiple ways, can be turned around and looked at from multiple angles. And that skill has been part of why the work of culture has been central to survival for almost all groups of humans that there have ever been. And that skill is something that we are rarely well equipped with by the kinds of education and training that modern societies give us, but that is to some extent carried within many of the practices that we think of as culture with a capital C. So you know, practicing that awareness that, you know, however difficult my conditions, there are elements within my life, my experience, that I retain the ability to reframe, to re-narrate, to rename, and that, you know, the, it's not just the stuff that's carried within the arts that is going to have to be released and reseed our cultures. We're also going to have to draw on the deep wells of our religious and spiritual traditions in order to reseed this landscape that modernity has left us with. And that's partly because that's how deep you have to draw when things are really hard in order to find, you know, the living waters out of which it becomes possible to to spot the hidden joke that those who are holding on tightly to power and control, those who think they're winning from a system that is anyway dying and is anyway killing so much of what is worth living for in the world, 
can't even see. The humorlessness of the systems that we're often stuck within and up against is one of the places where our secret power of being able to see the joke and share the joke begins to offer us cultural modes of uh, being subversive, of seeing around the edges of what we've been told is all there is to see. And that is something that I would want to you know, be in conversation with all kinds of people about. It's not something that can be or should be the property of those who get to call themselves artists or culture makers have any should have any monopoly on. I think this is a beautiful note to finish on, uh, uh, Dougal. Uh, this is this was a really really great uh, dialogue, uh, and it was you know I, I I couldn't have wished for a better start to this series. Thank you very very much um, for your really insightful contribution and. Yes, I, I hope that we can continue this conversation uh, at some point in the future. Um, mm. And I will clearly keep a close eye on your on your Substack um, and, and also, of course, on, on your podcast, The Great Humbling. Mm. Um, I'm sure both um, Writing Home on Substack and The Great Humbling can be Googled and can be found very, very easily. Um, I will obviously, uh, you know, post the... Uh, the, the recording of this of this video um, on, on YouTube. It'll also go out on uh, on the annotations uh, Substack um, and you know across our social media platforms. Um, at the moment, uh, I'm using Substack for for this particular uh, series uh, for the podcast, and I don't know how automated the actual uh, podcast distribution is with Substack so far. So this may actually take a few days before you know before it's kind of populating all the platforms. But um, the ambition is to do that as well. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's we need to have more of these conversations, um, and we need to network more closely among those who are fostering these conversations, so that that our audience can become part of that community um, very easily, and 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 that it becomes a sticky community that grows and hopefully makes this place a better world. Well, thank um, you, Nico. It's been, it's been great to be part of this conversation. And I suppose the last invitation I'd just make is if you're watching this in the near future or listening to it, then we have a series starting on the 7th and 8th of November, 2023, called Regrowing a Living Culture, which we're running over Zoom. And that's part of the work of A School Called Home. And you'll find that at a school called home.org. I, I was I was meant to mention that as well. Thank you very much for reminding me. It it, it looked it sounds really brilliant. It is not a free event, so uh, you know it will cost people some money. But um, I don't think that if somebody's really hard up, um, I, I'm pretty sure that you'll find a solution for that person. So Absolutely. don't yes. be put off by um, by by any kind of uh, paywall. But but let's be very clear: we all have to live. Um, and, and, you know, these conversations also need to somehow be funded. So um, anybody who wants to subscribe to uh, Adaptations uh, or indeed to uh, The Great Humbling or indeed Writing Home and hasn't done so yet, please do so. And please do take out a paid subscription. It makes all the difference to Dugald and me. Thank you very much, Dugald. Um, and uh, if you have any any links, any additional information that you'd like me to share alongside the video, send me an email and I just stick it as a kind of link under the under the video. Great. Thanks very much, Nico. It's been really, really good to speak with you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Take good care. Yeah. You too. Bye bye.